Join Edwin Frondozo on the Business Leadership Podcast every week for a unique program featuring insights and actionable items from the world's most successful business leaders. Hear firsthand the exclusive interviews and personal journeys on how today's transformational leaders made it to the top. Silicon Valley, where I do a lot of work, um, I there's a, they have a saying, and it says, and, and it's kind of what Elon Musk has followed, and you know you hear it reverberated back through you know, at coffee shops. You hear it all the time, but the notion is to fail fast. Mm-hmm. The the idea is you know fail fast and move on. Like don't don't cry over spilled milk. Figure out quickly if this is going to work or not, and if it isn't, don't worry about it. Move on. This is the Business Leadership Podcast, and I'm your host Edwin Frondozo. Welcome. How are you doing? How's your day going? Well, thank you for taking the time to join us today. This is episode number 82, and my guest today is Dr. Bryn Weingard. She's an award-winning professor, speaker, and expert. Bryn completed her formal education in neuroscience, psychology, marketing, and strategy, coupled with over a decade in corporate marketing working for Pfizer, Nestle Inc., and Johnson & Johnson Inc., while Professor Weingart retains positions at Schulich School of Business, DeGroote School of Business, and University of Guelph, she has now dedicated herself to helping others through speaking about building better business brains to groups, organizations, and companies stemming from her research, which combines business and brain sciences. When Dr. Brin isn't speaking, she's a regularly featured expert in television, radio, and print. In our conversation, we discuss the notion that you can literally become what you think or what you thought. For example, like like how you can believe yourself into better fitness, better health, or better outcomes. We really get in depth about the neuroscience behind quote-unquote your gut feeling and discover how our brains can help us create an external environment that is conducive to achieving our goals, basically how to develop a believing brain. This episode is brought to you by Dell Small Business, empowering Canadian entrepreneurs with the tools, technology, and resources they need to succeed. The Business Leadership Podcast is a friend of the ITWC Podcast Network and supported by our media partner, IT World Canada. Now, here we go. Welcome to the Business Leadership Podcast, Dr. Bryn. Thanks, Edwin. Thanks for having me. Now, thanks for your time. I know you're you're super busy, so I really appreciate your time. But why don't we start off by introducing yourself to our listeners? For those who may not know you, um, tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, and what you like to do when you're not you're not leading business leaders. Yeah, thank you. Well, um, my background is in and and what we talk about. I my tagline for my company, as an example, is building better business brains. The idea is is that I merge business and brain science together, and uh, that really stems from education. My educational background, lots and lots of years in schools, uh, studying both neuroscience and psychology, as well as mar- uh, marketing and strategy. And so, what I really have a passion for is the interdisciplinary space. So where those two things merge and the insights that we can glean for marketing as an example or for management or for leadership from neuroscience uh, and how an understanding of our brain and how it really works there's a lot of myths and misconceptions out there how an understanding of that brain 
can really help us in business be better as you know, to your point, to your podcast theme to be better business leaders. Uh, And so what do we need to know? What do we need to unpack in order to be better at all we do in business? Yeah, no, it's really fascinating. And when I was doing my research, and I was looking at things that you were talking about, it's, it's just so much things that are happening within our within our brain and and it's some of this unconscious decisions that we're doing but why don't we um i know probably with my curiosity and your expertise dr Bryn, we probably could talk for hours and hours about this <laughs> but let, let's 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 if you could do a quick um dive in terms of tell us about your work and specifically if you could tell us what you're currently focused on and maybe what you're trying to accomplish over the next six to twelve months uh, yeah, well, my current work is looking at uh, different effects on the brain and different ways that the brain manifests. So one of my current projects, as an example, is looking at the signals coming from the microbiome or the microbiota, which are all the little flora and fauna inside your gut. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know that the vast majority of the serotonin, which is sort of like the happy hormone, is being manufactured in the gut. In fact, you have a mini brain in your bowel. That mini brain is 100 million neurons, uh, and it manufactures those 100 million neurons manufacture 90% of the serotonin that you have. And so, in other words, your gut, that gut feeling that you have, that is, in fact, what is dictating your happiness, probably. Uh, and so right now, I'm looking at um, not just the signals, but then from the gut to the brain, because we know it goes that direction, but then from the brain to the gut. And so how it is that we can maybe create almost like a feedback loop that allows us to lose weight, to build our muscle mass, to, um, you know, be healthier, because we know that most of your immunity, as an example, is also in your gut. So that's one of the projects I'm working on right now. Very interesting stuff, very exciting stuff, and really stems from this notion, uh, you know, to your earlier point about how subconscious we are in our decision making, it stems from the notion that effectively, all that you are is what you become your thoughts. You literally become your thoughts. So you, as you have a thought, you neuroplastically rewire parts of your, that neural network that then physically are who you are. They physically, you physically become the things you think. Uh, and because that, that research is still, you know, lesser known and sort of hard to understand for some people and just almost unbelievable in terms of its ramifications. One of the things that, that I think this new uh, microbiota, microbiome research will be very effective for is proving to people, as an example, that you can literally, or at least this is my hypothesis, is that you can think your way into losing weight, or you can think your way believe your way into um, increasing your muscle mass or believe your way into better fitness, as example, and therefore better health and better outcomes. So that's one of the projects, as an example, that I'm working on, a very interesting stuff. And this is, you know, to your question, what do you do in your spare time? That, yeah. <laughs> that's what I do in my spare time. I'm a super nerd and I don't apologize for it. I sort of always have been. Uh, someone asked me in a very similar interview recently, why Bryn, why brain science? And the truth is, is that I've always been interested in brain science. Uh, I had a, a, a doctoral supervisor once who said that research was me search. The idea that like the stuff that you're obsessed with finding out about is really about yourself, right? Like the only thing that interests you that much must be you. And I, and I'll be honest, I don't know if it was myself so much as this notion of as a very young child, they asked me what I wanted to be. 
And I said I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. And I think I was about two and a half or three. I was very young. And they said, well, you know, you're probably, honey, do you really know what that is? You probably don't know what a neurosurgeon is. (laughs) And I said, no, no, I want to, when I grow up, I'm going to fix people's brains. And so they looked at each other and said, well, she must know. And so they said, okay, write down what you want to be in this. It was like in a book for, for kids to, you know, whatever. And I wrote down N-E-R-O-S-I-R-G-I-N, which is not how you spell neurosurgeon, but it was phonetically what I could figure out to write down what I wanted to be. Now, I found out later in life that I did not want to spend the rest of my life in a hospital and that I did not enjoy, um, you know, patient care necessarily. And while diagnostics was fun, it was really not for me. Uh, and so what I realized is I wanted to work on people's brains, but not surgically, uh, not, not literally. Yeah. And so, you know, that's really what I do in my spare time. I think about the brain. It's always been who I was. It's just always been fascinating to me. Well, I mean, I might be, or might be becoming your biggest fan because I'm like, I totally always try to figure out how I can improve myself. I mean, this podcast comes from, you know, myself trying to become a, you know, professionally grow as as a business leader and learning from people who are out there. And there are two things that I want to bring back that you just had said and it's and it and it's been talked about on this podcast a number of times is that gut feeling when it comes to decisions as well. Um a lot of people myself included would sometimes mentally ignore that gut feeling. I mean, I'm gotten I've gotten older and I've gotten to recognize that you know, there's something going on down there. I, I should really think about it. And it's probably telling me I don't feel right about someone or a decision or something like that. Is that exactly where that's coming from? And and how does that feedback, feedback loop in your research, like when I'm trying to think it through and say, you know what, I'm going to disregard that, that gut feeling? Yeah, a uh, very good question. So what we think is that what we used to, have you ever heard the adage that you're only using 10% of your brain? Yes. Yeah. And most people have, and Hollywood has run away with that. And the truth is, is that where that came from was we researched that, you know, in the 1990s kind of thing, when imaging was really novel and we really didn't know much about what we called the quote unquote black box of the brain or of the mind. What people thought was that the brain was really not 90% subconscious. Well, recent research and better neuroimaging, better neuroinformatics has informed us that actually it's probably closer to 1% conscious and 99% subconscious, which is to say, the reason I tell you this is, first of all, you are using 100% of your brain. Okay. It's all being used. Yes. 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 You're smarter than you think. But second is that... um, when you have that gut feeling, it's typically the vast majority of your neurons overwhelming the 1% in charge of conscious, rational, logical thought and saying, okay, if you're not going to listen to me, because that, that part of the brain doesn't have any direct way, it can shove itself into your conscious. But it's mm-hmm. if you keep insisting on ignoring what the subconscious is telling you, then what it'll do is it'll physically upset your body. It'll physically upset you. So that, that gut feel that is literally a physical feeling of nervousness or butterflies or like something is just not right here. That is your subconscious attempting to physically sort of shake you and say, listen up, this is not right. And so that's why very often, you know, yeah, the research would prevail saying trusting your gut Trusting your instincts, trusting all of those, the gut, the instincts, those are just basically pseudonyms for 
the subconscious brain. And so if you know that, then you know that really it's your subconscious saying, hey, listen up, we have a different answer for you. Now, what's interesting is that what's in the subconscious brain are all the emotional centers. And so when you really dig into it, you get into this reasoning, you realize that most reasoning, most decision making, most of what feels quote unquote right to you is what is emotionally aligned uh, to those neural centers or said differently, those neural centers don't feel is an emotional problem for you. But that's good news because you only have emotions anyway, because emotions are designed to motivate action that is in your best favor. And so the reason that we have emotions, either positive or negative, is in order to motivate action. And we have those emotions in order that we have the best chance of survival effectively, and that we lead our happiest, healthiest, wealthiest life, right? Uh, And so emotions, emotions are really supposed to motion, put you in motion um, toward what is in your best interest. And so for all of those reasons, that's why you get that physical gut response. It's your emotional brain. It is your subconscious brain saying, listen up, we have a better answer. Yeah, no, for sure. And (laughs) that point had brought me to just a similar conversation, not a similar, but a conversation I just had with my wife. We have a, we have a daughter. She's a toddler and she's learning emotions, right? And she's, she doesn't know how to handle these emotions, but it's, it's that anger emotion or the frustration. (laughs) And I dropped her off. This is true story at daycare. And she's like, Tato, which is father in Slovak. She's like, Hey, come play with me. And I'm like, well, I got to go. And she just says, no. And she hits (laughs) me. And I was telling my wife, she's hitting me because she, she's emotional. She doesn't want me to leave, but she just has no idea how to, how, how to handle that emotion right now. And it just brought, it just brought the surface what you were talking about that that was probably her best interest is for me to stay there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and definitely to do something that's fun with you in order that you would stay. I mean, especially in a toddler, and this gets into a whole other area of research, but a toddler's best interest is in trying to procure maximum amounts of parental solidarity and parental investment, right? And so she'll do anything, all things, all emotions at a very rudimentary level are designed to have you pay attention to her, help her, stay with her, be with her, vie for her, defend her, find resources for her. And so, I mean, a that's not your daughter exclusively. That's all toddlers. Yes. The idea is, is that, yes, absolutely. Our emotions are designed to help us act in our own best interest. No, it's crazy. I mean, for me, being a father, I love it. <laughs> but, but I mean, it just, it just brought it into, in terms of what you were talking about. And the other thing that you really mentioned uh, that I wanted to really bring up before we move on, because this stuff fascinates me. I'm always looking at how to, how to, you know, make things real in my life. So some of the practice that I do is saying affirmations. So you had mentioned that you could talk yourself into better health or or running a marathon or whatnot. So how does that practice of saying affirmations or that positive um, um, verbiage into your brain really really affect that or change you? So what the research shows is that what you say doesn't matter. It's what you think. And so typically saying it helps you think it, which is fine. And in fact, even what you think doesn't matter. It's what you believe. Mm. Uh, and so, and believing comes from feeling. So saying is less good than thinking it. Thinking is less good than feeling it. And feeling it is less good than believing it. Now, affirmations can help you think it, which helps you feel it, which can help you believe it, but it's not a straight line. And so mm. there is, you know, all kinds of, of uh, very good case studies out there of people who, I said my affirmations, why didn't it work? It didn't yeah. work. 
because <laughs> you, you didn't really believe it. Um, and so there's lots of good examples of that out there. And so what you have to do different. So this is why I sometimes say, well, you know, people say, I don't know what my, what, what's the perfect affirmation. Oh, gar- trash it, bin it. It doesn't matter. You know what you need to do? You need to sit with yourself and believe in some future state or some ideal circumstance or some, some goal you'd like to achieve. It's in the believing of it that you will create change neuroplastically in your brain, that you will actually create an external environment that then is conducive to achieving those goals. And so it's in the believing of the mantra or of the affirmation. It's not in the saying of the affirmation or of the mantra. I, and that's a big shift, right? I mean, to to have yourself believe something is 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 a big gap from like saying it right and and do you totally. know do you know of any practice or any research that that really helps i mean this is really for myself and also the listeners who are who are probably right now practicing affirmations and realize oh maybe i need to start feeling this as well oh actually and now i gotta actually believe it so how right. do you get to that belief well, I mean, there's a few ways. One of the the mindfulness movement and the meditation movement is really about that. It's about it, what I always say, and this is one of my brain science secrets, is that, in fact, every language is your second language. Whatever your mother tongue is, is still your second language. Your first language is in visuals and in uh, depictions and in what you can physically see, right? That was the first language that you learned as a baby. It's the first language that we all know. And so part of the shortcut, if you will, into the believing brain is one that is uh, visually stimulated. And so this is the, I think, the etiology behind not only why social media is, of course, so popular, right? You see Mr. Jones's new Ferrari, and geez, you can really picture his success, <laughs> say, right? But secondly, is that uh, vision boarding, you know, that whole, yes. especially millennials brought it into corporate sphere. But it's, I mean, it's great, because what it does is it gets rid of words, which are your, our second language, our brain is always translating words into images and vice versa and you know words into images of uh, and ideas into images and vice versa and so what's best is if you can envision something it's much easier to uh, to believe it or to find the believing brain using it in a more real way which then is not about the perfect affirmation or the sentiment or the you know the um semantics of finding what word works because what one person says is not going to mean the same thing to another person. So that's why someone else can't give you a verbal affirmation that's necessarily going to hijinx, hijack your believing brain, right? Because what they meant by it isn't what you will feel through it, etc. All to say that, yeah, vision is a very important, um, I almost want to say shortcut into, into the believing brain. And specifically, visioning in envisioning something so when you can create it in your mind's eye which is very typically what people do when they are in a mindful state or when they are meditating that is very typically when you see the most neuroplastic change and so when you see the most actual um movement in what is actually happening inside your cranium now again this is really because we know that your external world is Perception is reality, mm-hmm. and your reality 
is entirely built up by your neuroplastic inner real self, right? And so if you, you can tell the world you read the New York Times, but if you're really reading the sun, you can't fool your brain. It's not neuroplastically as advanced as you're letting on to the outside world. And so it's very similar. I hear people say all the time, oh no, I really do. I want to settle down. I want to get married. I want to find the perfect man. I want to have babies and a family. Mm-hmm. And they are conducting all this affirmation and all these mantras and they tell tell the world that and they tell themselves that verbally, but actually they don't believe it because what's interesting is while they think it's a good idea to let's say settle down and have a baby and get married and do the white picket fence thing, they don't actually feel like doing it. I sometimes joke in front of audiences, uh, you know, I think it's a good idea to run a marathon, but I feel like eating a Big Mac, right? Yeah. Like I would rather have a Big Mac than run the marathon. And so there's this huge chasm that to your point, words to believing, huge leap in, in, in terms of the mindset, what it really takes. I'll say this, neuroplastic change isn't just physically uncomfortable. It is emotionally and psychologically draining and it is work. It, it feels like work. So if you think that you're going to repeat to yourself, you know, that you're going to run a marathon, I'm going to run a marathon, I'm going to run a marathon. Yeah. That, is, that is not enough effort toward actually being able to. And so the difference there is really, um, you know, in believing it and is in neuroplastic change. Now, what they've shown is an example, and this comes out of some of the sports psychology literature and some of the sports, sports neuroscience but is that athletes who really um, who do the, the job of not just believing, but sitting in, a, usually in like an EEG or an fMRI or something, and actually going through their, let's say it's a professional sprinter, actually going through everything from warm up to set up to, you know, striker call to race time to post race perception, like when they do that in their mind's eye, they're not physically doing it. What we see is both practice effects. We see the fast twitch muscles actually in their body active, right? Like, so there's some level of tension that enters their physical body, uh, even though they're not actually on a track running the race. Mm-hmm. We see that the central and peripheral nervous system are creating practice effects. They are, it is as if that runner was running that race. And in fact, in an fMRI, we can show that there is no difference between the racer who is perfectly focused, not distracted, not, there's not a ton else going on, perfectly focused through their meditation and visualizing that actual race. And then the runner who's on that track to the body, to the brain, it is the same thing. And so what that allows is that they don't just become better, but that's when the most um, improvements to their practice, whatever your practice is, the most improvements actually happen not while you're physically doing it because of the wear and tear of physically having on all the other distracting effects and the audience and the competitors and everything, but the most improvements actually happen in your meditative zone. And that meditation is uh, if it's if it feels refreshing, some people say meditation is refreshing, but in, it should feel like work. It should feel like a session. Mm-hmm. It should feel like a practice session, like you just went through something, and you should come out of it feeling different and and not and I wouldn't necessarily say calm, relaxed, or refreshed necessarily. Like I am talking about active visualization and meditation that is not only changing your neural networks, which is uncomfortable and expensive to do, right? Like it, it costs you energy and it costs you, 
like physical, physical, literally calories to do it. Um, but it, you should come out of there feeling like you just went through some kind of, um, yeah, like something like a session or a practice session or a episode or something. No, that's really good. And, and as you were talking about that, I was thinking about two things and, and then I, and then I definitely want to move forward because I could talk about this with you forever. I'm pretty sure. But, uh, but, uh, I, I watch basketball a lot and it's like, I, I see them either visualize or do a practice shot. I don't know if it's meditative or not, you know, when they're at the free throw line and, and another thing maybe applicable for some of our listeners who are public speakers, maybe like yourself, you know, visualizing getting in front of the stage of 5,000 people or 500 people or whatever the case is and, and really actively think about what you're saying and, and going through it and feeling it and doing that. Mm-hmm. And is that sort of like the practice, right? In terms of absolutely yeah, very yeah. applicable. Yeah. Hey there, biz leader. I hope you are enjoying this conversation that I'm having with Dr. Bryn Weingard. If you like what you're hearing or have any questions, please feel free to join me on my free private Facebook group where I share daily insights, answer questions, and connect you to other like-minded business leaders. Go to thebusinessleadership.com slash FB group or search for the Business Leadership Group directly in Facebook. Now let's get back to it. I want to just change gears. As you had mentioned earlier, um, things that you wanted to do is working with the brain. And and it, all, and it was very evident when I looked through your career, Dr. Bryn. I mean, it was really evident that you, with your interests within neuroscience and then business. But what I'm really curious about is because you moved along a lot. So were there any key decisions that you had to make? And perhaps they were difficult decisions that allowed you to grow as a business leader who you are today? Uh, a few times. I mean, I think, you know, so I went from sort of corporate marketing uh, while I was studying into professorships and then from professorships into my own proprietary company, mm-hmm. effectively. Uh, and, you know, yeah, I think at every one of those transition points, there was a lot of pain to be had. There was a lot of struggle. I mean, if you had taken a uh, look at, at um, you know, the business, my business or my career, or my tra- or even my sentiment about it at the time, uh, you know, wasn't always, <laughs> wasn't always great. Like it wasn't always um, even super optimistic necessarily. And it was definitely a lot of work and a lot of struggle. I think, you know, at every point that I pivoted, I felt as though I had to from um, an intellectual perspective. I felt as though I needed a challenge. I never wanted to be stale. I never wanted to get bored. I never wanted to. Unfortunately, the minute that you kind of become an expert in something or you feel like you got a handle on something, you become kind of idle and you stop growing and you stop pushing yourself. Mm-hmm. And um, what do they say about idle hands or the devil's play thing, right? It's just, I think keeping out of trouble was really what I was <laughs> I was trying to do. And, you know, I grew up, I was always in gifted schools and stuff. And so I would like, I get bored easily. I get, I, I need to keep myself interested and active. And I knew that from kind of, I life lived a very, you know, very inquisitive sort of uh, person. And so those, I think those transitions were challenging and yeah, usually born out of kind of the realization that growth was going to come through this. I, I was going to have to go through a pain period and that pain period was valuable, was going to be valuable because, uh, I needed to grow and I needed to, uh, and, and, almost, you know, reverting back to what we were talking about, I kind of had a vision for my life 
that I didn't see happening or I wasn't, I realized that the trajectory I was on, the path I was on was not going to get me to kind of where that was. And, you know, that was, I always thought I wrote as a two and a half year old, I was going to be a neurosurgeon. And how dismayed was I, Edwin, when I went into medical school and found out that I hated hospitals, right. like I, physic- I physically hate hospitals. This is going to be an impossible profession for me. I hate hospitals. It's what I had dreamed of my whole life. So you kind of had to go back to the drawing board and say, well, what is it about neurosurgeon <laughs> that I wrote down? What is it about that that I liked? And what is it about that that I want to mm-hmm. I was trying to um, create or trying to manifest or trying to achieve or accomplish. And it turns out that, yeah, I didn't want to physically, surgically alter brains. I wanted to neuroplastically help people be better using their brain. And so like that was the eureka moment. And so then I went into clinical psychology and I thought that that would be the answer that, you know, what I was, I was going to, but then I realized that I don't like, in fact, here's another pivot. I don't like the pathologized brain. I didn't want to deal with disease and disorder and dysfunction Mm -hmm. and pathology. I wanted to deal with healthy people. The book from good to great, I wanted to get them from good to great. I, what I was obsessed with was this idea that you have this computer in your head that is in, in charge of all action, reaction, reality, perception, personality, your fate, literally who you're going to become is going to be predicated on how this machine inside your cranium works. And so I was obsessed with tweaking that and with how it worked and with understanding what, even at the time, this is back in the 90, early nineties was still a black box of the brain, right? Mm -hmm. Like we still knew very little compared to what we know today, which is why of course I'm still so excited about it is because technology has changed more over the last seven years than in all the history of the earth. And that includes some of the neuroimaging technology. So like, it's just getting better and better all the time. And here's this thing that I had been looking at almost like I, I, you know, an inanimate shape, almost like a prism. I'd been trying to understand it from the way that the light had been reflecting off of its surfaces. And now we can actually see right through it. So it's amazing elucidation. It's amazing sphere of inquiry, if you will. Um, But that is every time that I pivoted is really because I found out either that I was, uh, there was a dead end. Mm -hmm. So I had, I had to change. I was forced to change or I was, you know, this just wasn't the right. It wasn't, I wasn't going to be using my best self for the benefit of others so, or for the benefit of anyone else. No, I mean, that that's really interesting and because uh, there may be people who are listening who might be feeling that and maybe not the dead end part because that should be really evident. But if you're sitting somewhere right now today and, you, and you're realizing like that maybe I'm not using my full potential again, like how long did it take you, Dr. Bryn, to realize, okay, it's time to make a move? Like were you sitting there for three months, three years? I, I can't imagine it was three years, but – there is a thought process that got you to think like, Hey, I've been doing the same thing for X amount of time. I need to move now. Yeah. Uh, I think it was different under different circumstances. So it happened very quickly, uh, as time went on. I don't know if you've ever in Silicon Valley where I do a lot of work. Um, I, there's a, they have a saying and it says, and, and it's kind of what Elon Musk has followed. And, you know, you hear it reverberated back through you know, at coffee shops, you hear it all the time, but the notion is to fail fast. Mm-hmm. The, the idea is, you know, fail fast and move on. Like don't, don't cry over spilled milk, figure out quickly if this is going to work or not. And if it isn't, don't worry about it, move on. And so I think that part of that is, it was always different to answer your question. It, it depended on how quickly I had mapped uh, for myself, 
the system I was embedded in, as well as the workings of that system, as well as my role in that system. And so once I figured out that, uh, and who I wanted to be either in that system or outside of, maybe I didn't want to be in that system. Ultimately, maybe what the system had to offer at its highest echelon, um, you know, I didn't want, like I, I would look as an example, in my marketing career, I would see that the GM, who is five levels up from me, and theoretically, if you stay the course, that's the that's the progression you're on. And I'm sure there's lots of people listening. I identify with that. I looked up the corporate ladder and said, "Oh no, not me! I'm why am I vying for that? I don't want that. That poor man's life is awful, and he doesn't make enough money, if I'm honest. And the work he has to do isn't much fun. And here he is stuck in Markham, Ontario, and so on and so forth. So I thought, like that is just not. There's not enough glory in that there's not enough utility utility in that he's helping almost nobody and he's doing almost none of it right because he he the figurative he at that point was uh, managing other people who were doing it but but he himself wasn't doing it which means that he was developing no skills and if they were transfer transferable then if there's no skill there's nothing transferable there so he really wasn't learning much more than the idiosyncrasies of the people that work for him. In other words, he had to be a master of their person and of their personalities, but he wasn't actually learning a craft or a skill. Or And if he was learning an industry, it was coming vicariously through the data analytics of his subordinates. Right. So I started to realize that that was not a good trajectory uh, and certainly wasn't going to help me with what I think at the time, too, I was still sort of in denial at at. Um, I had pivoted, obviously, from a medical career into uh, marketing at that time in pharmaceuticals, so it wasn't totally different. But the idea is, is that, wow, I'm in a very different environment now, and I, I don't know if I was in denial, but I know that I wasn't honoring my true passion which was uh, much more brain geared toward the human brain and not trying to get people to buy more stuff. That's not that interesting to me, but getting people to use their brain better to, to be better in their world and their life. Now I don't mind the science of purchasing and of sales and of selling and of persuasion and of influence. I talk a ton about that, mm -hmm. uh, but it's interesting to me from both production side as well as consumption side. So uh, you know, all to say that, yeah, it, once I had mapped, basically, short story long, once I had mapped that system, how, what the trajectory of that system looked like, and then my role in that system, if I didn't like the outcome, if I didn't see the pot of gold at the end of that rainbow being a pot of gold that I wanted, if it was a pot of coal, <laughs> <laughs> then I was out, right? I just needed to leave. And so that's it's sort of for that. It was that. It, and it takes you a while. It's a whole learning curve. For sure. Usually, usually takes you to kind of figure out, well, you know, here's where I am in this. And does this or does this get me to what I'd like to do with my days or not? Is really simple question to yourself. No, for sure. Well, I appreciate you sharing that. Uh, Dr. Bryn, can you name a person who had a tremendous impact on you, on you, who as a business leader, it could have been anyone who maybe was a mentor, an old boss, but uh, uh, let us know who they are or what they did to make that impact. Oh, yeah. So my grandfather, the Honorable Dr. William Weingart, he is uh, what they conceptualize as the intellectual forefather. He started the University of Guelph, as an example. It wasn't a university pre previous to that. Uh, he fought in World War II. He has now the Order of Canada. He was the youngest ever coder in um, in the Canadian Navy. Uh, and then he was a professor for a number of years. And then he went into public policy, which is a thankless job. He was a politician, effectively. Mm -hmm. uh, 
uh, and then a consultant and so on. And so he's been an inspiration for many reasons. I mean, you know, not just because he's brilliantly intelligent and has seen all kinds of life that you and I will never see. Like we just, you know, we we aren't never going to be 16 again and going to war. Right. I mean, this is just, he has unbelievable stories. So there's, there's just kind of that is, you know, and he has a famous saying to me, you know, and when we were little anyway, he, as a parenting tactic, he used to say, well, honey, you can't make all the mistakes in life yourself, which was really a listen to your elders kind of Ooh, a statement. That's a good one. Um, <laughs> It is a good yeah. one, though. You might you can use that with your yeah. daughter, uh, but but it's true, right? And and so he kind of in a non abrasive way, sort of he let it was easy to follow his lead, and it was he made it easy to uh, heed his advice. Uh, he's always good for great advice, and I think also he's been an inspiration, just like sort of interpersonally and certainly vocationally. But I also take inspiration uh, that you can have multiple careers in your life. There's always the, 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 the threat is you, uh, but you can have multiple careers and that you can be successful in those. And he, I think he was very similar. You know, I think he, or I'm very similar to him said differently. And that once I'd sort of, he'd sort of mapped his course um, there was a logical sort of end point in many of those things. In one case, because the war was over, thank God. But, you know, in other cases, because he could see that his contributions to a, a given, you know, task or project or system or organization or company or university had sort of reached their maximum point, uh, And he was free to kind of deploy himself on other things and in other projects and in other priorities. And I, I take a, a lot of solace, but a lot of inspiration from that as well, where, you know, same, like once I kind of think to myself, you know, I've done what I can do here. I've made the changes. I've contributed as much as I can. I'm not going to be able to contribute on a much bigger scale. I've got to move on if I'm going to continue to kind of use my best self for the benefit of others. Um, then that's what I do. No, that's great. And, and so, yeah. yeah, he's been a really good inspiration that way for sure. Yeah, he sounds like a great man. And uh, I'm, Gonna look him up as well. It sounds like I could probably learn yeah. <laughs> from the outside looking in for sure. Um, Dr. Breen, yeah. what are you reading right now? Yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, right now, this is gonna surprise you, but maybe not totally. I'm we're I'm sort of intro not just the microbiome and the microbiota, all of that stuff. I'm also very interested in and have been reading about uh, rest. So literally like downtime mm-hmm. and like sleep. Um, the idea all of it, like sleep daydreaming, literally dreaming, daydreaming, um, idle time, sleeping, resting, recuperating, uh, even extended periods of rest like sabbaticals. Uh, there's a new book out called Rest, R-E-S-T, by a gentleman named Kim Soo-young Pang, I think. His last name's Pang, anyway, P-A-N-G. He's out of Stanford. He did a whole bunch of research basically on how rest is actually critical to performance and that that I'm I'm obsessed with that because neuroscience would tell us that that's absolutely true that the brain needs a break in order to perform its best that's why sleep is so critical toward uh, your performance that's why you're you're very you know we have an adage in, in English where we say you know sleep on it and maybe you'll come to a better answer Ab- absolutely I mean the brain is actually comes alive while we're sleeping so it turns out that when it looks like someone's doing nothing is in fact when the brain is the most active because it takes neurons and electricity and calories and oxygen to run the physical body. And so 
this is, and I, and I sort of leave you with this idea, but Marissa Mayer was the VP or one of those of innovation for Google for a time. And what she found, you might have heard this, that they used to have what they called 20% innovation time off. And what it was was 20% of the time during your day at Google that you could daydream and think about any project you wanted. It didn't have to be one of the ones on your project list. didn't have to be one-on-one on your critical pathway. It could just be anything you wanted. And what she, sh- what she found and showed... Uh, very potently was that the vast majority of the successful commercializations and innovations at Google had come from that imagination time, innovation time off. And so what's interesting is that even though when someone's sitting at their desk and they look like they're in la la land, like they're daydreaming, and, and this is what we find with athletes, right? Even when that athlete is lying down and physically doing nothing is when we see the most neuroplastic change toward improvement of their time on a racetrack, of their swing on the golf game, of their ability to go and do public speaking, you name it. And so what's interesting to me is that when the physical body is laid is laying low, then the then the neural self can actually improve, and vice versa. So there's really good research. Most of us are doing this wrong. Get up really early, and then we work out first. And it turns out that that's actually we're using our best brain time, our best brain energy, and our best brain self every day to physically move when the brain is actually basically idle from an intellectual or creative capacity, which would be fine if we weren't most of us knowledge workers, but we as knowledge workers effectively wake up, exhaust ourselves, and then have nothing left for our brain to use because our energy, our willpower, our motivation, our stamina is all finite during the mm-hmm. day. So we actually disadvantage ourselves as knowledge workers by by physically moving, by working out first thing in the really day. Interesting. What we should yeah, what we should actually do is the brain work first and the physical work second. And so two things, the key takeaways for me, and I had a VP, a director of a company I would I did some training with, a big bank. Uh, and he said, well, thanks a lot. Now all my workers tell me that they should, that I, I should just let them feel free to daydream all day long. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> which is, of course, not true. There's a limit, all things in moderation. But two really critical pieces of advice would be, hey, as a knowledge worker, if you're a knowledge worker, start your day with brain work and end it with physical work to burn off the rest of the energy, the calories, the stamina, the whatever, the caffeine in my case. And then also feel free to daydream. I mean, it's in those daydreaming la la land moments when the body is calm and the brain is really active uh, that we actually come up with our best ideas, with our most creative ideas. We have those breakthroughs, those eureka moments. uh, and, And that's really when you're, you know, you're doing some of your best recuperating and refractory periods that will allow you to get back to the task at hand with much greater fervor. So don't be afraid of daydreaming. Start your day with brain work, not busy, busy body work. No, that's uh, that's really synchronizes up with a, a recent post I did on my private Facebook group. Um, I had talked about scheduling a do nothing day, uh, and I said just just yeah. do it. Like pick a day in October write it down and let's let's keep ourselves accountable for it because we need to as hard as it may sound do nothing for one day um and you'll probably come back really really energized and stuff so i'm i'm totally yeah, into i'm totally yeah. into you that so thank you for sharing that i really appreciate that i know we're running down real quickly dr Bryn, but I, I have a quick fun question if i were to ask any of your team members past present colleagues peers business partners what's the best leadership quality that you possess what do you think they would say Mm, probably a natural curiosity. Uh, and so, you know, curiosity really allows that, um, 
you, I'm not like, I don't, I have no ego about being right or wrong. I'm just super interested to, you know, find out things. And I think also, and it's not just right or wrong, but there's a like, there's a flexibility there. There's a responsibility and a sh- power sharing there. It's a very collaborative approach to things that I think stems from curiosity in general. And just the idea that, you know, there's no right and wrong here. We're just, we're just seeking, we're seeking relevant answers for the pro- project or problem at hand. So I think they would probably tell you that it's, um, you know, it's a, it's an definitely an intellectual <laughs> exercise. <laughs> to work with me. Um, but that curiosity is what motivates predominantly. And I think otherwise, you know, a lot of good elbow grease, no, not afraid to do the hard work and roll up my sleeves. I know they would tell you that, but I think they would say that it comes from just sort of that natural curiosity of the human brain and how to help people use theirs better that uh, really propels us forward. So, you know, it's not really about the money. It's not about the ego. It's not about anything else. It's about the curiosity. I love that. Dr. Brin, is there anything else? I know we talked about a lot of the things that you're, you're curious, you know, you're working on, you're focusing on, but is there any other fun project initiatives that you're, you're really pumped and excited about that you'd love to, love to share us? Oh, um, well, I'm writing a book that'll be out in 2019. So please pop over to the shelf or to Amazon, uh, and, and buy it. But no, I mean, otherwise I think, wow, we've covered a whole lot. I'm exhausted. I don't know if your listeners are. I'm amazed that you have so much stamina still, Edwin. I I command you. I'm going to take a nap. I'm going to take a 15-minute siesta after this just to recharge. (laughs) (laughs) You deserve it. You deserve it. Absolutely. No, thank you. No, but before I let you go, any final thoughts, observations that you'd love to share for the emerging business leader who's listening today? Yeah, start with your brain work, not your body work, and feel free to daydream. Love it. And to close, where can we find more information about you, um, your company, or anything else you'd love to share with us today? Yeah, it's all one-stop shopping. On in this, you can't actually buy anything, so it's not stopping. It's just a t- term phrase. If you'd like to know anything more, you'd like to read anything more, all the research I'm doing, articles, where I'm going to be, talk, things I talk about, stuff I research, it's all at drbrin.com. Awesome. Well, thank you for your time and stopping in at the on the Business Leadership Podcast, Dr. Bryn. Thank you for having me, Edwin. It's an honor. It's a pleasure. Thank you. That's it, biz leaders. Thank you for joining me on the Business Leadership Podcast, episode number 82 with Dr. Bryn Weingart. If you want to learn more about Dr. Bryn, her work, or anything else we discussed, please go to thebusinessleadership.com slash 082. This episode is brought to you by Dell Small Business, empowering Canadian entrepreneurs with the tools, technology, and resources they need to succeed. The Business Leadership Podcast is a friend of the ITWC Podcast Network and supported by our media partner, IT World Canada. Please join me on my private Facebook group called The Business Leadership Group, where I share daily insights, answer your questions, and connect you with other like-minded business leaders. And if you haven't done so yet, please subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, iHeartRadio, iTunes, or wherever you're listening to your podcast today. Thank you again. Edwin signing off. Thank you for listening to the Business Leadership Podcast at thebusinessleadership.com. Help me.